Well, this morning I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. This morning we'll be looking actually at just the first two verses, but I'm going to read with you the whole of the chapter of chapter 1. We want to give our special attention to verses 1 through 2 of Colossians 1 under the heading of Greetings to the Church. Let's read God's Word together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have, had, that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the Gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of His glory, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, 
warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works through me. Dear congregation, this is the Word of the Lord. May we receive it with a believing heart. Well, my most dear friends, when the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Colossians, he was sitting in a Roman prison, writing to a church he did not start, a church he had likely never even been to before. Yet, as we see in chapter 1, he writes with great earnesty and he writes with great interest. You see, when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, the church was being assailed by two separate heresies, two separate attacks from Satan himself. The first thing that is revealed to us in the book of Colossians is that this church was being attacked by what we would call the Judaizers. These would have been people who taught that Christ was well and good. But in order to be fully saved, you need to embrace, yes, Christ's work and all of His teachings, but you also need to practice the Old Testament laws. The Judaizers taught that Christ was not enough. That one needed circumcision. One needed the dietary laws. They needed the festival days in order to be fully saved. That's what Paul will go through in chapter 2. The second heresy is that of what we might call Gnostic philosophy. And now let me define that for you. They were similar to the Judaizers in that they taught that yes, you needed Christ, but you needed something extra outside of Christ. But instead of teaching that they needed circumcision or dietary laws, they taught that you needed some extra revelation outside of Christ. If you flip to chapter 2, verse 18, the Apostle Paul will actually quote them talking about asceticism, which is severe self-discipline, and the worship of angels going on about visions, Paul says in verse 18 of chapter 2. You see, what was being taught in the Colossian church could be likened to something like this. You know that nagging sin that you strive so hard against in this life, but you seem to make no headway in? Well, Christ is all well and good. But He's not enough to fully free you from all of your sin. No, you need something else. Something in addition to Christ in order to be free from sins. We can imagine them saying, Christ is a great start. He'll get you to the door. He'll begin salvation for you, but you have to complete it. Or maybe Christ is great, but He's not enough to give you all the knowledge that you seek. He's not enough to give you all the holiness, all the power, all of the joy that you might want. See, when it's put in that context, what we see is that it's a pretty serious problem, isn't it? What's facing the Colossian church. You see, at the heart 
of the problem in the book of Colossians is that there were people in the church who sought to take the congregation's eyes off of Jesus Christ. In a sense, to treat Christ as if He's not a complete Savior. But the Apostle Paul will say, as we read in chapter 1, that Christ is sufficient. He is enough for what you need in this life. And I want to suggest to you this morning that the church today is in, in as much need of this message now as it was then. Still yet, one of Satan's most effective tools to destroying the church is to take our eyes off of Christ and to focus on other things. Whether it's philosophy, whether it's tradition, whether it's the building, the minister, whatever it may be. But in this case, it was the philosophy and the traditions of the Jews. So what are we to do when Satan comes to this congregation, the Trinity United Reformed Church, and begins to knock on our door? What are we to do when the Bible instructors in the seminaries, no, yea, even in the churches, begin to teach more philosophy than the Word of Christ? Or what about when somebody begins to mix the opinions of men with the commandments of God? What do we do? The design of this whole epistle, and yes, also this sermon this morning, is that all of the hope of human salvation is to be kept in Christ alone. All of the hope of human salvation is to be kept in Christ alone. Therefore, we must rest our faith entirely on the work of Christ and live according to the Gospel of Christ. To put it in a negative way, what I'm saying is you don't need the Mosaic ceremonies. You don't need humanistic philosophy. What the church needs is Christ. And that's what Paul is seeking to set before the eyes of the Colossian church. And even our eyes today, Christ is enough for you, and Christ is enough for this congregation. And so I want to show you this in two points, just in those first two verses the will of God for the church and the grace of God for the church. You see that first, point one in verse one, where the Apostle Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. And Timothy, our brother. You see, congregation, it's the will of God that he would appoint officers to the church who are given to the congregation to set before them Jesus Christ. Notice that the apostle Paul very succinctly says he is one of those officers. He is Paul, an apostle. Verse 1, as we mentioned, he has likely never been to the church in Colossae, though he would have ministered uh, extensively in Ephesus, which is a city that's quite close to Colossae, yet we see he feels 
compelled to write a letter to a church he's never been to. To people he has not met. Now, the danger in these first two verses for us in our modern day is we can tend to skim read them, right? It's just an introduction. It's a greeting like a letter. And we move on. But pause and think for a moment. Why would Paul do this? Imagine if in Grand Rapids there was another church that we heard about was having problems and I took it upon myself to write a letter about their problems and what they should do with those problems. How do you think that letter would be received? Well, I think it would probably be received with offense. They probably wouldn't be too happy with me. They'd consider me an arrogant individual. Why would Paul not be treated the same way? He tells you in verse 1, because he's an apostle. But what is an apostle? You know, once back in the day when I was, had Facebook, I no longer have Facebook, so don't try to add me as a friend, but once when I did have Facebook, I saw an ad that two women were coming to the city of Toronto and they were going to lead a seminar of which I was invited, and they were both apostles. So what is an apostle? Am I an apostle because I stand before you and speak? Can anybody be an apostle? Now, the term apostle only belongs to those who are truly apostles. But what makes someone apostle, by and large, we've recognized three criteria. Three criteria for being an apostle. And the first criteria for being an apostle is that to be an apostle means that you need to have a direct call from God to preach the Gospel. We see this in Luke chapter 6, verse 13, when Christ has gathered a whole swath of disciples, a whole group of people who are coming to Him to be taught by Him, and He selects 12 of those people. He names them apostles so that they would have a direct command from Him, from God Himself, to go into the world and to preach to all peoples. They received a direct command from God to be His ambassadors. But the second criteria is that they also become people by God's commission, His choosing and commissioning of them, that they have received in an, an infallible that is a knowledge of God's Word that is without error. So that they can write and speak the Word of God to the church. And there, this was not a time when they had the Bible. And so they spoke and wrote not their words, but God's words. The Apostle Peter will write of Paul's words in his letter that Paul's words are that of Scripture. Paul will also say in 1 Thessalonians that to read his letter is to be equated with the same authority as reading of the Old Testament. They were given an infallible, a perfect knowledge of the Word of God. Now this doesn't mean that they, in their private life they were without error. Peter himself would fall into that heresy of Judaizing. But that when they spoke and wrote, according to the Word of God, what they spoke and wrote was the Word of God itself. 
But the third criteria, and most importantly for our question here this morning, is that when the apostles received authority, they did not receive authority in only one congregation over one group of people, but they received an authority to preach to the whole world. They had no one parish. The whole world was their parish. What the Apostle Paul is saying in verse 1, just in that first sentence, is that I meet this criteria. He's saying, I am an apostle. And we know that Paul is an apostle. He meets this criteria. It says in Acts 9, the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. God had commissioned him, called him to preach to the whole world. And we know that he wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 1, verse 11 through 12, it says, But I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which was preached, but that which that which was preached by me is not according to man, for I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it but I received it and preached it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul was by every account and metric that we have today an true apostle. And these apostles were given to the church for the laying of the foundation of the church. They were not given for all time. They were, for, they were given for the beginning. The foundation of the church. The Apostle Paul himself even says that in Ephesians 2. They are the foundation. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, I do not make any claim to know anything about construction. But the last time I checked, once you laid a foundation and then you put up the studs and the drywall and the bricks, you didn't put another foundation on, on top. I guess what I'm suggesting to you is that if you have tickets to that show in Toronto with the female apostles, maybe you shouldn't go. You see, the office of apostles ceased with the last death of the apostle, likely John. And so then, the offices that remain for us are pastor, elder, and deacon. But we can take heart when we read the book of Colossians that Paul was an apostle. He was a gift to the church so that he might make them mature in Jesus Christ. But notice what he says. That he wasn't made an apostle by his own will. He didn't choose to be an apostle. The church didn't elect him or vote on him to be an apostle. He was an apostle by the will of God. This is a remarkable statement in the first sentence of this letter. What this means, dear congregation, is that as we receive the book of Colossians, as we receive the whole of the Word of God, we are not to read this letter as Paul's take on the Christian faith. We're not to receive any of the Word of God as Jeremiah or Isaiah or Samuel's take 
on the Christian life or on God Himself. Paul is saying, receive this Word of God as the Word of God. We are to read the book of Colossians as if God Himself had opened His mouth and was speaking in our midst. Think about how great of a comfort this is to that ancient church. This is a church that is tempted to look to other means. Tempted to look to other people, other philosophies, other traditions. And Paul is asserting once more that God has provided a means of salvation. He has provided a means of revelation. He has provided all of the knowledge that you might need in this Christian life. And He has provided it in the Word of God. We can't go any longer without a word of application this morning to apply this to our lives. That the Gospel can seem often so weak and insignificant compared to this world. It is written and it is preached by weak and defiled sinful men. Like Paul. Like myself. Like any other preacher. And as we hear it, sometimes it can be so I don't know, meh? Take it or leave it. We look around the church, right? We see empty pews. Where is God's harvest? Where are God's people? Is this enough to save lost sinners, we might ask? Think about what Paul is saying in our own context this morning. He's saying this Word of God, which they're about to receive in the book of Colossians, is the means that God will use to draw people, other sinners, to Himself. This is the means that God will use to build your church in Colossae. This is the means that God will use to build the church here in Caledonia And this is the means God will use to save lost sinners in our midst as well. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 18, some of you must know it well, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So I asked the question this morning. Is this foolishness to you? Is what we're doing here this morning foolishness? Or is it the power of God? He's cutting to the heart of the matter in that first sentence of this book. Salvation is of the Lord. And if we're tempted here this morning, like they were in Colossae, to desire an angel from heaven, to desire extraordinary visions 
or to divine revelation, we expect that to lead us to saving faith. It's not going to happen. Paul says we need to hearken this morning to the apostolic doctrine of Christ and Him crucified. That alone is the power of God. That alone is salvation. That alone is what will give the church what it needs. Christ alone is sufficient for us even here this morning. But another word of application is doesn't this display the love of God towards the church in sending apostles to her? In Ephesians 4, Paul outlines the offices of the early church and he says that God gave the church gifts and those gifts were apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors. They were given for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity and the knowledge of the Son of Man. Maturity and the fullness of Christ. He is saying that God gives to the church officers to mature us in Christ. That's the point of the offices. That means that these men, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors are given to point us outside of ourselves. Not to point us to the world. Not to point us to humanism. But to appoint us to point our eyes to the perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And doesn't that truth still apply for us today? Our pastors, our elders, and our deacons are given to us as gifts from the Almighty Savior to point us to Christ. We don't elect deacons and elders by their knowledge of law or this world or based on their personalities. Or here's one I hear a lot. We need a pastor who can get people in the door. But Paul is saying the most important part of these offices is when we call someone to serve as a pastor, when we call someone to serve as an elder or as a deacon, is do they point our eyes to Jesus Christ? Do they take our eyes off of the things of this world to direct us back to Christ and to His Word? Paul says, I am one of those officers. I was appointed by the will of God that the church might hear of the glorious person of Christ, of His sufficiency for you, and of His supremacy over all created things. And it is the will of, the God, will of our God even today that His ministerial power might be governed through these offices. And that these officers might point us to Jesus Christ. Notice secondly, the grace of God to the church. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Verse 2, at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Though the church is assaulted by many deadly heresies, notice how Paul refers to those in Christ. He calls them saints faithful brothers. Please take note of the author of those attributes in verse 2. 
to God's holy people in Colossae, faithful brothers in Christ. That is, that they are holy in Christ. They are faithful in Christ. They are brethren in Christ. They are not called these things because of the work of their own hands or the purity of their own bodies or their churches. They are these things because they are in Christ. I'd like to take a moment to remind you of a doctrine this morning that God's church will never die. Jesus said, I will build My church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Yet many denominations and many congregations will fall away from true religion. This happened to many of the churches that Paul wrote his letter to, including the the Colossian church. Yet Paul writes to the believers in a wayward church and says that they are holy, that they are faithful, and that they are brothers. Not by virtue of the church. Not by virtue of their own hands. But by the virtue of their Savior, Jesus Christ. And the heresies that Paul was facing very much had to do with people who were teaching that they needed something else. They needed to do something to attain holiness. But Paul is contradicting them here. He says that Christians are holy in the NIV and in the, he calls them saints in the ESV. He doesn't mean that they're spotless or that they're the best of Christians. But by using the word holy, he says that you have been set apart as Christians. Someone becomes set apart for God's own use when we enter into covenant with God through baptism. He receives us into His flock. He protects us and we acknowledge Him as Lord and renounce all other lords. They are holy in Christ. But the word faithful here is used, the same word used in verse 7 to describe the faithful minister, Epaphras, who was the founding pastor and the friend of this congregation. Paul calls them by that same title. He indicates that they are Christians by proof and Christians of proven character. But they're Christians in Christ, or faithful in Christ. He also calls them brothers. Speaking of their adoption, they are called brothers because in Christ they have the same heavenly Father. By regeneration and faith, they are adopted as the children of God and become the brothers of one another. John indicates this as well in the prologue of his Gospel when he calls us the children of God. See, by faith, we're grafted into Christ. We're quickened by the same Spirit. And just as natural, parents, or natural children come from natural generation from their parents, we are spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have received spiritual life and spiritual origin and our Heavenly Father. But the most important thing 
is that you be in Christ. He showers kind words upon them. Saints, faithful, brothers. And the means by which they are endowed with these things, the means by which they become these things, is in Christ. Here we are to learn there is no such thing as holiness. There is no such thing as faithfulness. There is no such thing as the communion of saints or brothers and sisters together unless it be grounded in the grace of Jesus Christ. You see, there are many faiths and secret societies that will have a rule of holiness. This is how you are to live. There are many religions out there in the world that have a faith, that have a brotherhood, a community of which they live. But they have all of these things apart from Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is saying these things are not good on their own. They will only result in fruitlessness and only only lead to destruction. We need a Savior. We need someone who can save us. And so how does somebody become holy and faithful and brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ? Look what he says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace is the favor, undeserved favor of God by those who merit His condemnation and wrath. We are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. Paul says we deserve God's wrath and His anger against sin, but God in His grace sent His Son into the world. By Christ's death, sinners are fully reconciled to God. Notice that word, fully. Christ has, by God's grace, has brought full reconciliation. He has brought peace between God, our Father, and sinners who trust in Him. Full reconciliation just in this greeting. The Apostle Paul says that we are not a quarter reconciled to God by Christ. We are fully reconciled to God by Christ. By grace, we are saved And it is through grace that we have peace with Almighty God. To suggest anything less is to suggest that there is not full salvation in Jesus Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism, when reminiscing on this subject, will say that to suggest that we need to pray to saints, or that there is another apostle such as the Pope, to suggest that we need philosophy and tradition is to suggest that we must compensate for where Christ lacks. And the Catechism says, therefore in that theology and in that tradition, Christ is not a full Savior. He's not a complete Savior. But the Apostle Paul is saying just in these opening two verses, is that Christ is a perfect Savior. And that we must hearken, even this morning, to that apostolic doctrine that we are saved 
by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is God's gift to ruined sinners. So I want to conclude this morning with a question. Are you at peace with God through Christ's grace? If your answer is, yes, but I'm looking to the saints and the prayers of the saints to top off my faith. Yes, but I am looking to philosophy to fill my church or I'm looking to tradition to carry me to heaven or to deal with my sins. I promise you, you will be sorely disappointed with these things. The book of Colossians wants to assert that the only thing that brings peace between God and man is the Son, Jesus Christ. He alone is a complete Savior. He is the one who offers a whole and complete salvation, top to bottom, beginning to end. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He alone is fully able to save from every sin, from every shortcoming, every wicked thought, and every wicked deed, He can save you from them all. Trust in Christ. Trust in Christ alone. Maybe you're a mature Christian this morning. You could say, by God's grace, I have trusted in Christ. All the application for you is so simple this morning. Keep looking to Christ and never take your eyes off of Him. When somebody comes, and they will come, who will preach to you another Gospel, Christ and works, but it's often not that simple, is it? Christ and saints. Christ and tradition. Christ and whatever it might be. Even good things. Even if an angel were to stand in our midst and preach these things, what should you do? Let them be accursed. And run to Jesus Christ. Pursue Him with all the strength of your body. And never take your eyes off of Him. A final word of application is sometimes we can be so discouraged as well. We can be discouraged because sometimes it seems that Satan is winning and that the church is failing, and that we need to resort to some other tactic in order to build the church, let us never forget that Christ is the One on the throne. He is the One who is ruling and reigning. He shall never be moved. And He can and will build His church. Though we may be discouraged sometimes, May we never lose heart knowing that Christ is the One who is building. And if we are in Him, one day He will take us to Himself to be with Him forever as a member of His church. Triumphant. It is the design of the whole of this epistle, the whole of even the Bible we may say, that all of the hope of human salvation is to be kept in Christ, no matter what. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know that it is of the most ancient of heresies, and it will always be the heresy that afflicts this church, 
of every church to take our eyes off You and Your Word and the Savior. We pray that by the power of Your Spirit that You would direct our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would never take our eyes off Him. We pray, Lord, that for in many senses our church, the churches today, seem like the Colossian church. We are tempted to look to other things for the success of our church, the success of our faith. But we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would never be moved from Your Word and that we, like the saints of old, would be steadfast in Your apostolic doctrine. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we might hold on to the blessed hope until the day of His appearing where we shall see Him face to face. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.